I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> if you're new, we've been studying through Matthew chapter, well, the whole book, but we've been in chapter 24 and 25. We embarked on that recently, and we've entitled that section as the King's Blueprint for the Future. The King's Blueprint for the Future. And it covers the tribulation period, which is a seven-year period that is divided into two halves, equal halves. And verse 4 through 8 deals with the first half of the tribulation. And then verse 9 and following in chapter 24 deal with the second half of the tribulation. Where we are to help you understand and remind all of you, we, we are talking, or we're in the section now, verse 9 starts the second half of the tribulation, but verse 15, with the abomination of desolation, is the signal event that the rule of the Antichrist is no longer diplomatic, it's no longer friendly, no longer are people being able to worship as according to their conscience, particularly the Jews that have been allowed in Jerusalem to worship in the temple, to offer their sacrifices, to offer all, uh, celebrate their festivals and all their grain offerings. And so in verse 15, we see that signal event that the time has changed. You've you are now in this point where the Antichrist is demanding worship and everyone who doesn't do that will be persecuted. And there will be a number that you would have that would give you the right to work, to get food, shelter, whatever you need. And if you don't have that, you will not only be persecuted, but you'll not be able to get food, sustenance, take care of your family or anything of that nature. And it's in a seven-year period. It begins kind of slow, but all of these things take place, like in the book of Revelation from chapter 6 on, during this period. So there's an enormous amount that takes place. And then here, if you'll notice, the, the vast majority of Christ's time was spent, verse 9 through the rest of Matthew 24, on the second half not the first half, because it's somewhat calm, and the deception is there that you're trusting the Antichrist and that everything's really getting better. So we looked at verse 15, the, the abomination of desolation, and then we have began looking at the response of God's people to that event. So the people who are living at that time particularly the Jews. Remember, Matthew is written to Jews. So there are Gentiles involved in this, of course, but you, we've noticed many times, and will probably today, that the language is referring to Jews. And so <clears throat> I want you to read with me in verse 15, and then we'll walk through the, the command that he has already given, and then today we'll see the other commands that he gives. So the first command that he gave, so first notice verse 15, therefore when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And so 
We've looked at Daniel, we've gone through all of that, and Daniel prophesied that this would happen, and now Christ is saying, when you see that, then he has commands that follow that to the Jews. It's going to affect others, but he's warning the Jewish people. And so the first thing he says to them in verse 16 is, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And we saw the word flee means, it's used many times to disappear. So he said, you must disappear into the mountains. And from Revelation, we find that God is actually going to have protection set up for them. But they have to flee instantly. So notice the urgency of this command in verse 17 and 18. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get his things out that are in the house, and whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. There's no time for anything. So this, this is going to happen very rapidly. When, once this signal event happens where this image of some kind is set up of the Antichrist in the temple, the forced persecution of those who have been worshiping Jehovah God or anybody else is going to come on them very rapidly. So he said, you must disappear into the mountains. You can't go back and get a coat. And remember, they had flat roofs where they entertained and they slept up there in the cool of the night. And he said, don't even go downstairs and get something that's valuable. Get out. So that's the urgency that we've already talked about last message. And then notice his concern in verse 19 and 20. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. And so they're going to be running. They're going to be fleeing with everything they have. And so he says, woe to those who are pregnant. Why? Because you can't move as fast. You're nursing a child, so this could, at that time, could range up to three years old. So if you have small children, he says, whoa. And then he says, pray that your flight's not on the Sabbath, because the Sabbath, other than they're corrupting the Scripture, they couldn't travel. And by the time Christ came, it was five-eighths of a mile that they could go. So again, remember, this isn't talking to Gentiles, it's talking to Jews who will be observing the Sabbath. And he says, pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath or in the winter, because the winter traveling conditions, particularly in that area or any area, are harsher and more difficult than they are in summer conditions. So the first command that he gives, those that see, those that are living to see the abomination of desolation... They are to flee, not go back for anything, not do anything except get out of there, disappear. And as I said in Revelation, they will be supernaturally protected by God, and some believe it's in the mountains of Petra, but we don't know for sure. So the second thing, he warns them not to lose hope. He warns them not to lose hope. In verse 21 and 22, 
For then, so this is when the abomination happens, then there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So we've said there are people who say, well, this has already happened. It happened in the first century and when Rome under Titus came and uh, toppled the temple and killed 1,100,000 Jews and took others into slavery and so forth. No. He said, there's never been a time like this, nor shall there ever be one. You just study the kings alone from that time and see the atrocities they've done. But with, with modern technology and dictators and so forth, we've mentioned several times uh, Adolf Hitler, Mao Zedong in China, uh, Pol Pot in Cambodia, The numbers are less, but the percentages are staggering. It was like 50% of the population. Stalin killed, I mean, you can hear numbers from tens to 100 million. At some point, it kind of becomes immaterial. But he did execute and cause the death of tens of millions. And Jesus said, this is coming and there's never been a time like it. So we we don't even have a glimpse in comparison when we look at history to what is coming in this tribulation. And notice that he says in verse 21, for then there shall be great tribulation. So the tribulation, seven years, the first three and a half, we refer to as the tribulation, sometimes all seven years. But Jesus distinctly singles this half out as the great tribulation that is unparalleled in history. The, the problem with this kind of persecution or any kind of persecution or tragedies that are talked about in the book of Revelation and so forth is the loss of hope. I mean, what gives a person hope is that they're going to get well. The person that's been taken from them is going to return. The persecution's going to end. There's a tornado coming, and what gives us hope is it's not going to hit us. And then once it's gone, we have hope again. So when you go through earthquakes and tragedies and uh, cosmological upheavals and personal things, we lose hope, and that brings depression. And so they're going to go through a time that there's no parallel in history. And so he warns them, do not lose hope. Because everything they're looking at says there is no hope. Remember we said that just on these numbers, if you took, there's an average of somewhere around 8 billion people today. And in one part we read in Revelation that 25% are killed. And then a little later, a third of that population that's left is killed. So what you have is over half the population, and if it was 8 billion like today, you have 4 billion people dead. Not tens of millions, 
Not just hundreds, but billions of people. There's nobody to help you. There's no Red Cross. There's no country doing well that can send help. Everybody's in the same boat. So depression, suicide, the loss of the will to survive. That's when suicide comes in. In great tragedies and famines and, and wars, and people lose hope and commit suicide. It's, you can go back and see some of this. And they have pictures of <clears throat> and, and the Great Depression here of these business tycoons on Wall Street jumping out of windows. They lost all hope and committed suicide. They never could foresee coming out of that. And so you lose hope. The tribulation is so black and intense and unrelenting that many will fall away and many will lose hope and many will commit suicide. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 12, he said, How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. And remember what we said is that it's, it's really two, three and a half year periods. Daniel gives an extension in that verse, which is probably an intermediate period that's included because like when Christ came, there was an intermediate period between the last Old Testament prophet and to the first new one of John the Baptist. And then there was an intermediate time between the crucifixion and the starting of the church on the day of Pentecost. And so there appears to be an intermediate time between the battle of Armageddon and Christ setting up his kingdom. And that could be to get rid of all of the death and carcasses and all the other things that are there. So he says, blessed are they who keep waiting and attains to that day. And Zechariah, remember again, it does include Gentiles in Revelation, the tribulation period, but it is Christ fulfilling his promise to the Jews of the 490 years he owed them, and he still owes them seven years. So in Zechariah promising this rebirth of a nation, Isaiah talks about, he says in verse 8 and 9 of Zechariah chapter 13, and it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. And so in the end... To all of the Jews that are alive at that time, two-thirds of them will die. And God will bring a remnant in, and that's what he will establish, the Davidic kingdom, the millennial kingdom of a thousand years, with those Jews seeing the fulfillment of the Davidic promise through the covenant with David. But great persecution will befall them because two-thirds will be wiped out as God refines them. Look in Revelation chapter 6 
And we've read other verses from there, and so I want to add these to the list that we've seen because Matthew 24 is kind of summarizing what the book of Revelation goes into in greater detail. And I, I want you to be thinking about the, the caliber, caliber and the size of the tragic judgment and befalling of Satan being unleashed, what it's like on earth. There's nothing that compares to it, as Jesus said. So verse 12, and this is the sixth seal, and remember the judgments in the book of Revelation, they are, they are dispensed, and the imagery is used of seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls of wrath. So this is the sixth of the seven seals, and they come first. John says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. You say, do you think that's really what's going to happen? Of course I do. Nothing like it has ever happened. We have no models. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig tree, as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. So it's not just the figs are hanging on there and one's dropping and another like a falling star or something. This is when it's being rattled and they're falling just going everywhere. And when stars are falling to the earth like that, this millions of people are being destroyed just by that. Verse 14, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So what do you think is happening there? I think every mountain and every other thing is moved out of its places. What you're seeing is a topographical change of the earth. Because the judgment of God has come against sin, and he has taken his reins off of Satan and allowing him to operate with full strength. So the islands and mountains are moved. You won't know where you are. Whatever maps you had, they're all destroyed. If you're trying to get somewhere, if you even think you can, you're not going to know where it is. Every, everything that you ever held on to, well, we can depend on this, or I know how to get there from this, or this tells us that's all gone. And then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich, and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand it? Notice it's the wrath of the Lamb. It's an oxymoron. Lambs don't harm you. But they misunderstood this is not only the Lamb of God, He is the Lion of Judah. 
And he came and, and when they pummeled him and they plucked his whiskers from his beard and when they beat him with a cat of nine tails and they mocked him, he was the lamb who did not utter anything. But when he comes this time, that's not the case. Because he's coming to rule and reign and to take what is his rightfully and rule and reign over it. And look, it, it's, it says they're praying to the rocks to fall on them. Do you understand how despondent, depressed? They see no way out. So just bury us alive. You know what one of the great tortures is? To be buried alive. And they're praying for that to happen. Look in chapter 17, verse 5. Chapter 17 and verse 5. And it says, verse 5, And on her head, her forehead, John is, saw this vision. He says, A name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman, the woman that he's seeing, this Babylon the great, blood, uh, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witness of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. So there was Babylon. This is not Babylon, the historical place. But what Babylon represented was worldliness in the nth degree. Everything palatial. Everything you wanted, live it for yourself. And so Mystery Babylon represents all of the world's ideas and monuments and philosophies and leaders all together. And they are destroyed. And it is that world system that the Antichrist is leading that is drunk with the blood of the saints. Verse 14 these, those that are mentioned there and the Antichrist, the beast, he said, these will wage war against the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, and those who are with him are called the chosen and faithful. They battled him as the Lamb and by all human appearance they won. But when they battle him as the Lord of lords and the King of kings, they are no match, and they will all be destroyed in the battle of Armageddon, and he will set up his kingdom. Look back in Matthew. So everything is headed for incineration, total destruction. I mean, it's just beyond our ability to comprehend that it's going on globally. And there's no way to stop the tide, humanly or satanically. So the whole thing goes up. And that's what he means in verse 22. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
So first, the word saved is a word that means saved as we think of it as salvation, but it's also often translated delivered, rescued. And of course, you can see that meaning in salvation, but here it's the idea of physical deliverance. So he's not talking about losing their salvation. He's talking about if the days hadn't been cut short, they wouldn't have even been delivered. Everything was so bad, it was destroying everything. And destruction was eating up whatever was left. And then the term elect, it is, it is sometimes said like it's this, this abstract group. So if you can, what I mean by that is that there's this group of people that God has elected to be saved. They're not saved now, but they're called the elect. And, and great scholars have looked at that over and over and over, and there's nowhere that it is explicitly stated that there's an abstract group. When you look at the word elect, it always refers to the saved. So there's two groups, saved and lost. So this is the saved that he's referring to. So he says, again, Verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, no life, nobody would have survived. But for the sake of the saved, not even the saved would have survived. It would have annihilated everyone. Those days will be cut short. So remember, crisis, you go in through the tribulation, then you have the battle of Armageddon, where all of the People who are not following Christ are killed. The only ones that are left are those that have lived through the tribulation and they will populate the millennial reign. They will start the population. They will have children during that thousand years, but they are the ones that started. So you couldn't have the wrath of God unmitigated and Satan running wild with every power and resource he has, continuous because it would have destroyed everything. Now the word cut short is kalabao, and it often speaks of something being shortened what, than what is normal. So you can, you can look it up, and it's a, it's a Greek word, so you'd have to look it up in a Greek lexicon, but it it's the idea of amputation. So somebody has a leg and, and it gets amputated, so it's shorter than normal, shorter than it should be or could be, and so forth. Uh, Kittle, in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, he speaks about the physical deliverance. And he says, that is, he has made it shorter than it would normally have been in terms of the purpose and power of the oppressors. If he had not done so, even those who prove themselves to be the elect by their faithfulness and who have been wonderfully kept thus far would be brought to physical destruction. So what we're talking about is something that is so vast and so powerful and so destructive that it doesn't end until there's nothing left. Even God's elect even God saved. The saved that have been faithful, that would populate the kingdom, they would not have been left. So he 
made it shorter. Now, some think that means that God intervenes and stops it suddenly or instantly, and it does mean it's an instant stopping of it. But it may be better to understand it that God, knowing everything that would happen, that he predetermined the length of the time so that those that were going to populate the kingdom would be alive and not be overrun. God's wrath would destroy everything. And remember that even as we sit here, Hebrews is very clear that God upholds everything. So if he ever withdraws his upholding power, everything starts crumbling and falling apart. And remember, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians that the only reason that the Antichrist doesn't have his full power to do what he wants to do is because the restrainer, he's being restrained now. And that's, I believe, the Holy Spirit restraining him. So we've seen that quite possibly Satan has tried to bring the Antichrist on the scene with Antiochus Epiphanes and Hitler and maybe others. But God said it's not time because God is in charge. So we're, we're looking at a time when they have Satan, God says, okay, do what you will. But not only that, God is bringing his wrath down. And notice they said the wrath was for them. It was their wrath. And so if God had not cut it short, nobody would have made it. The universe would not exist. So The third thing that he says is beware of false Christ. And that's in verse 23 through 26. Then... If anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the saved. Even the saved the people who know Christ. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. In other words, no matter where they say, This is the Christ over here, you need to come and see him. Or he's over here, or he's over here. And there's all this evidence and miracles and signs and vast followings. He says, don't go. I've warned you about this in advance. So there will be a plethora of false prophets and false miracles and signs and wonders to deceive even the elect. Many will follow. So I think that those that have been protected by God and taken into the mountains, maybe some are going to infiltrate that. And some of them are going to leave and go and follow only to be annihilated by the Antichrist. 
There will be others that do the same thing. Maybe they're in safe safety, but they're going to come out thinking this is Christ. Remember, they're without hope. And so somebody said, here's the deliverer, here's the Christ, the Messiah. Look at all the wonders, and you look, it must be God, it must be. And he said, I told you, it's not me. It doesn't matter how spectacular, it doesn't matter how many millions of people, nothing trumps the word of God, period. And that's why we have to know it inside and out. Verse 24, if possible, would mislead the elect. It's not calling into question the salvational security of the elect any more than when Christ said, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, called into question whether or not he would die for our sins. It's trying to show us the depth and the brevity, or the depth and the breadth of this, how serious it is, if it was possible. It's not, but if it was, it's going to be so alluring. The fugitives are drained, they're physically and emotionally and mentally wiped out, families are gone, they're huddled probably hungry, they don't know what's going on, they don't recognize anything, and all of a sudden they hear, here he is. It's like the light at the end of the tunnel, and they run towards it. But he said, disregard all claims. Disregard them all. For us, just a moment of application, as I referred to at the beginning, Many have said, well, he came mystically or spiritually in 70 A.D. Oh, okay, so that's what he meant. No. He tells us exactly how he's coming. It's physical. He didn't rise just spiritually. He rose physically. And so we're warned over and over. And then you watch people just get drawn in because the allure A guy on the mountain. Thousands go to the mountain. David Koresh. Thousands follow. Reverend Moon. Millions maybe followed. So here's you have what they should know and glean. But you can glean as also. We're waiting on the rapture. We're looking for Christ in the rapture. They're looking for him coming back to earth and setting up his reign. But one of the telltale signs it is a false Christ in this time period is that you have to go somewhere to see him. That's the telltale sign. That's not him. Because when he comes back, every eye will see him. Everyone will know. It will not be like the first coming. So it's, it's a false attraction but it's the attraction of the day. Signs and wonders. They preach heresy. And that's what we've faced all of Christianity and do at this very hour. Those who don't know his will will be duped as they are now. Matthew 7 says these false teachers perform many miracles. 
2 Thessalonians 3.9, they perform powers, signs, and false wonders. Revelation 13.13, 13, false prophets perform great signs. Revelation 16.14, spirits of demons perform great signs. And someone will say, yeah, but, but Brother Ronnie, I mean, how could that be happening if it's not God? I mean, you can just hear it over and over and over. Well, I mean, we could just see the power of God. Really? Really? More than the Word of God? So, he's warned them to flee. He's warned them not to lose hope. He's warned them because of false prophets and Christ. And now he warns them to watch for the Messiah. And that's in verse 27 and 28. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Just an interesting American historical footnote. If you noticed, most, uh, most cemeteries in America faced eastward. And it comes from that verse. So that when you're buried and you would rise to meet the Lord when He returns. So there are secular ones that don't do that, but Many of our historical uh, cemeteries were built that way. So he says, don't follow Christ. So notice this coming is so radically different than what's come before. And notice what he tells them. This is really something that can kind of elude us. So the time in which we live... And I've taught we're to look for Christ coming in the air to call his church in to meet him. Signs and wonders are not what we're looking at. That's what precedes the second coming. But in that time frame, that seven-year period, particularly the last half, they are still to be looking for Christ, not the signs and wonders. They're to be looking for Christ coming to set up his reign. So both now and then, the eyes of God's people are to be upon the return of Jesus Christ. The character of his coming, the second coming, is unlike the first coming. He's born here, we were told by the prophets. He would hide here. He would minister here. But when he comes this time, you don't have to go see him every eye will behold him. It's supernatural, it's universal, it's public, it's sudden, it's undeniable. No unbeliever will be denying the second coming of Christ. It's like lightning that comes and every eye can see it if they're looking. Now this next phrase in verse 28 is a little unclear and it says Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And so a couple of insights in it that the imagery being used is vultures. And so some uh, say that this signifies the suddenness of Christ's coming, the suddenness. And if you've ever been out hunting, and for you city slickers, I don't have any help for you today. You're just going to have to go read the Encyclopedia Britannica or something. But if you've ever been out camping or in the woods or out in a field, you can see them. You, can see, you can't see the animal, 
a carcass, but you can see the animal, and they come suddenly, and it's like you don't know where they came from. So you could be there today, and then two hours later, you're looking over in the same place, and there they are. So it's a suddenness. Some say it emphasizes it, uh, that they appear to dispose of the bodies and so forth from all of the carnage and everything, and that uh, may very well be a part as well. Some say it is emphasizing the visibility of his coming, and we said that every eye will see him and that, that it's like the lightning coming from the east to the west. And so it's an interesting thing about vultures. You're out hunting and you're in the mountains or you're on the fields or you're in the woods, and you can't see the body, but you can see the vultures. They're very, very visible, and they're circling and so forth. So I think all of those things uh, can play a part. And I would suggest a couple of others that it seems to emphasize the surety of it, the surety of it. So when an animal dies out in the woods or fields or something, you can be assured the vultures are coming. You may not have seen any of them, you don't know where they are, but they're coming. So it may be that, that it's coming for sure. The other is the timing of it. So vultures, unlike eagles, they don't hunt their prey. But they don't show up like humans a day late and a dollar short. When they get there, the animal's dead or dying, and everything's fresh. It's not a rotted corpse. And so their timing is, is precise. They're getting just what they wanted. An unspoiled meal as far as they're concerned. So you have the warning to flee. So I want to take a moment and just kind of apply these to us in the day in which we live. So they'll have a warning to flee. And we said that word flee, disappear, to run from, and this is the word that's used in, in Timothy where Paul said flee immorality. We're to flee false teaching. We're to flee an undevoted life to Christ. We're to flee the things that distract us from seeing Christ and following Him. We're to flee a misappropriated life where we're appropriating all our time to the things that are rather than that which is coming. And then we're warned not to lose hope. This is one of the threats of Satan and the world. And it's, it's relentless. It is constant to lose hope. Paul Ehrlich was a German uh, biochemist. He's most, he's most well known for his theory on the response of the immune system in human beings. Well, that was what he was known mostly for as a scientist. But in 1968, he wrote a book called The Population, Ex Ex uh, the Population Explosion or the population bomb, it may have been. It was written in 1968. 
It's what gave much of the fuel that was one that preceded it 20, 25 years, which he had read before. But it's what fueled the overpopulation work to get us to have fewer children and to scare us that we're overpopulating the planet. It, it is what fueled and started the environmental movement. And they were working to get him to publish, and he did publish a, a manuscript of it uh, before the 1968 elections. This book sold millions. It influenced the world. It ignited a fear of overpopulation that began many of the things that we see today. And at that time, there were laws passed, like in India, and they were forcing sterilization. So it was worldwide. He ignited it. The first sentence in the book said, the battle to feed humanity is over. The battle to feed humanity is over. Meaning we had lost. The world was supposed to be gone by now. We would all die of starvation. There wouldn't be enough food. And people would just be dying everywhere and it would all go out of existence. And then there was the freeze of the planet in the 70s. Now the global warming. I'm not saying they don't have any significance or shouldn't get our attention or there's not things to be done. That's not the way it ends. That's not the end. And you will walk around in fear if you keep listening to people who are not paying attention to the Word of God. He said, I told you these things before. What authenticated Christ's coming, the first coming, was all of the prophecies that were told beforehand. And he's giving us the same thing here. In this passage, verse 4 through the verses we've looked at, You have verse 4, don't be misled. Verse 5, many false Christs will mislead many. Verse 11, many false Christs will mislead many. Verse 23, false claims to being Christ, do not believe them. Verse 24, and prophets will do wonders and miracles, they will mislead many. Verse 25, They'll say he's in the inner room, don't believe them. Four times the word mislead appears in those verses. And he warns against being misled. We're in the same situation. But now we can mislead people globally, very easily. And so we have to be people who have devoted ourselves to know the Word of God. And then in spite of all that we're looking at, Trust the Word of God. He said, I've told you before. Will you bow your head? And... We have to trust the Word of God. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved.
He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. It's not our family, it's not our past, our heritage, but it's our personal faith and belief in Jesus Christ, the person and the work that he has done on the cross for our sins. And if you've never made that commitment, you're following one of the great deceptions of Satan that ends up in hell with Satan. So I encourage you to come and talk to someone this morning and they'll lead you to understand what it means to be saved and to follow Christ by faith. If there's things holding you back from a life that's focused on Christ, I pray this morning you will deal with those because we even now live in very dangerous times. And though we've looked at the great tribulation, we do know that there's tribulation all over the globe. Christians are being persecuted. It can come here very easily. And you don't get ready then, you get ready before those days, grounded in the Word of God, used to living a, a life of faith. And we're not misled, no matter how alluring things look, how wonderful Whatever the miracles, whatever somebody tells us, we keep going back to test it with the Word of God. It is the only thing other than God himself that has not been corrupted by the fall. It's the only thing. If the Lord touches your heart to join this church, we invite you to come. Father, we thank you for your Word and the warning in your Word. And may our thanks be shown in our heeding it and taking it so ever so seriously in our life. We pray for those that will come after us in this time we've studied. We pray that there'll be people that'll trust you against seemingly insurmountable horror. But Lord, may we give them like some of the people that we've studied have given their life and following you when the costs were so great and they stand as encouragers to us. And so may we leave others encouraging lives that were faithful regardless of the cost. May we leave that to our children, our friends, our parents, and others. May we be people that honor you where you have us and faithful unto the end. We love you in Christ's name.